welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it, build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. Okay, so welcome to today's episode of Gigami. My guest today is Cliff Fluey. Welcome, Cliff. How are you? I'm very good indeed. How are you doing, David? Yes, I'm fine, thanks. It's Friday afternoon here. It's probably Friday afternoon where you are as well, isn't it? Yep, the nature of the metaverse means that we're in real time, so there we are. Whoa, stop right there. The metaverse? What is a metaverse, and what on earth has it got to do with the music industry? Quite a lot, as it turns out, and it's going to become more and more important, and you're going to need to have at least a basic understanding of what it is. Today's episode of Gigami is going to be a little bit different. It's all about the future. My guest is leading music lawyer Cliff Fluey, who spends his working life at the point that music hits the new digital technologies. Each new technology needs a licence if it wants to include music in its offer. Be that Spotify, who puts music front and centre in its business, TikTok, Twitch, Roblox, even somebody like Peloton, who sells online cycling classes, which have music as a background. They all need a licence from the rights holders, such as songwriters and recording artists, record companies, music publishers and their collection societies. Amongst other work, Cliff helps those companies obtain the licences so that they can use music. The licences set out the way those companies must pay to use the music so that the rights holders and the creators, that is you songwriters and recording artists, get paid. You're going to hear a lot about data. Getting the data to your songs and registering it is the only way you're going to get paid in the digital world. Each song and each recording has its own data. Data is just its identifier. It could be a code, it could be some words, but Cliff likens this data to the bank account and sort code of the song and track. If the person who uses your work doesn't know your bank account and sort code, they're not going to be able to pay you, are they? If there's one thing to take away from this episode, it is to collect the data you need for your songs and your recordings and register it. You will see more info about this and some useful links in the notes to this episode on gigami.co. That's G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. You're going to hear words like artificial intelligence, blockchain, NFTs, and yes, the metaverse all complicated things, but each of them offers you new opportunities to make money. But never forget, in the digital world, money follows data. So keep your eye on the data at all times. Anyway, enough from me for now. Back to Cliff. How did he end up at the cutting edge of the record business? I'm a lawyer by trade. Um, I studied law at university and um, I had a rough idea that if life was a game, law was the rules and might be handy to know those if I wanted to win the game. That was about as much thinking as I'd done in it. Um, and um, like most people, I was spectacularly ignorant of what life in the law could or you know, would look like as a grown-up. Um, and the first time I heard about lawyers at record companies, it was uh, I was standing outside a lecture theatre, and some colleagues of mine were having a conversation 
about lawyers who had fridges in their offices with beer in it. And they worked for record companies. And I asked the question that I spent the rest of my career being asked, which is, why does a record company need a lawyer? You know, it's a question I'm still asked to this day. You say, you've heard of a record contract? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, lawyers. Um, yeah, so that was it, really. That was the first time I'd ever heard of the fact that um, lawyers became uh, uh, lawyers could work at record companies and get fridges in their office with beer in it. So uh, years later, having qualified um, uh, as, as a lawyer in real estate, of all things, um, I saw an ad in the newspaper for a job at Warner Music, and they wanted a qualified lawyer, and said uh, only qualifications were good sense of humour and qualified solicitor. That was it. That's all it said. It was a half-page ad of the Times. And I applied for it, and I spent the first two interviews sort of craning my neck to see whether or not I could find a aforementioned fridge, and I did. So uh, that was it. I was I was in. So um, so this was in the mid nineties, so in ninety six. I uh, joined Warner Music in the business affairs team, and I joined as someone who was passionate about music and just adored it growing up. Um, didn't have the opportunity or the life chances to be able to learn an instrument through my straightened background, but definitely consumed music and absolutely adored and loved music as well and that was it so um, entered in business affairs um, and I suppose what really is typified in me the benchmark of my career and something that really ages me particularly when I'm talking to younger people is that I joined the music industry before the internet was a thing and then the internet arrived and indeed where I worked um, there was actually access to the internet was blocked to everyone but in business affairs for the first three years because you know the the music industry didn't like the internet and that really was my uh, uh, what set my career in a particular direction which is being the sort that sort of normally runs to the sound of gunfire than away from it watching the internet arrive and watching how major labels and how the BPI and RIAA were responding to this thing as a kind of moral panic, really, rather than the opportunity, is what really, really, really uh, engaged me uh, intellectually. And then, um, so having, you know, I had a wonderful time at Warner Music, got to work with some of the biggest artists in the world, got to meet some of the biggest tech entrepreneurs on the planet got to see an industry in crisis and where it could go. In 2001, I took a decision which was in many ways highly risky, if not foolhardy, to leave the industry because I really wanted to go onto the platform side of things. I, I had a burning sense that actually the industry wasn't going to get any better unless I went to the other side. And particularly because the strategy for the music industry to technology for the first few years was if you ignore it hard enough and sue it hard enough, it will go away. So I went on to the other side, so I went on to the broadcast side and I became general counsel and company secretary of what was Capital Radio PLC, which is now Global Radio. And during my time there, we secured some of the first ever online netcast licenses, the kind of licenses that the likes of Spotify have got, working to put music on mobiles because working with these companies, Nokia and BlackBerry, they had a sense that all the world's music was going to end up on a, on a mobile phone. Not sure quite what happened to that business model, but hey... Um, and going into multi-channel television and particularly IPTV um, as we did. So that's really where I did that, as well as doing lots of corporate and, you know, crazy talent stuff and events and all of that. So and then what led me to where I am now? Um, I was a client of the law firm Lewis Silkin when I was at Capital. I went in to give a talk about how I thought media was going to be transformed and or disrupted. This was in early 2004, and how the whole world was going to fall apart and re be rebuilt. And my sense was that there weren't very many lawyers out there 
that were focused on the future. And there was a massive gap in the market. And they said, how do you fancy being part of the solution? Of which I said, don't be ridiculous. And they said, no, you can come and do whatever you want. So ever since then, uh, since the end of 2005, the beginning of 2006, I've been a partner at Lewis Silkin and founded its media entertainment team. And from day one, the focus was on digital media rather than just media and digital music rather than just music um, and during that time acted for most if not all of the handset manufacturers most if not all of the streaming companies lots of companies in the world of influencers and crazy technology now which is what I spend most of my time focused on things like artificial intelligence things like blockchain and I have been particularly fascinated with what we used to call immersive entertainment and is now turning into the metaverse but I'm sure we'll be chatting about that sometime soon. When you were coming into an industry, it's sometimes easy to assume that the way it is, is the way it's always been. But the music industry has been ever-changing from the point that music became a business. There is a view, there is a prevailing view that the music industry, or indeed music, just existed in this beautiful world. And things like copyright and music sat in the Garden of Eden. And then this horrible snake of technology came in and ruined it all. And for all of that, I call fake news. Copyright was born of technology. It was a 250-year older response to the printing press and there is a real othering of technology so I work with some AI music companies and they say hit a button and music comes out that's an outrage so what a piano is music technology and they're like what a piano not a Moog not a synthesizer not a it's a piano it is a device made by music to humans in order to do that and of course the invention of recording came from a man called Edison who invented the light bulb um, and then he needed content to fill it. So, of course, during my lifetime, I see the arrival of the internet. I see the arrival of Napster. I see the arrival of iPod. I see the arrival of the uh, iTunes Music Store. I see. And again, every single time, there is a sense that it's going to destroy the music industry. What destroys the music industry is a failure to understand that every single time there is an opportunity. For years and years and years, electronic instruments, uh, particularly synthesizers, were banned from Top of the Pops because of the, the, the jobs it would take. There used to be something called needle time restriction, which was controlling the amount of music that would be paid on the radio, first in order to preserve the works of orchestras, and then to pres they, they believed that if you stopped the amount of music that was being played on, on radio, people would go and buy more. Oddly, the more music you played on radio, the more that people went and bought. But of course, all of this, and what it really comes down to, is hang on, how I used to make money or how I used to control an industry has changed and I don't like that. That's really what is usually happening. So the idea that radio would be the biggest promotional platform ever or the fact that YouTube might have been the biggest promotional platform ever, it is whatever anyone says, the biggest streaming platform, music platform on the planet. Now people don't like that because they don't think it pays right, but it's palpably true. And, you know, you're seeing it now with regard to TikTok. So I suppose that's really where I'm, where I land on music and technology, which is technology has always enhanced the industry. You know, sampling created a whole genre called hip hop. Didn't destroy music, what everyone thought. What always unlocks is the key that unlocks everything is licensing. And that is where I play. That's my punchline which is if you can build a licensing model so that people get paid equitably, not necessarily equally, equitably, you can create everything from Rapper's Delight to monetizing platforms like TikTok. 
Um, I think there is absolutely a value transference question between what goes from the platforms and what goes to the rights holders. There is also a separate and as important conversation about what goes from the rights holders and then goes to the creators. And that's a lot of it to do with legacy contracts and how people are and aren't calculating things and how we can deal with things like metadata and attribution and allocations of revenue. And in a world where we have fantastic tools like artificial intelligence, not just artificial intelligence and music, but machine learning, etc., etc., and we've got abilities to be able to attribute things in a distributed and immutable way using technologies like blockchain. What we need to do is have people who really understand the industry look to apply these tools. At the moment, there's a lot of technology people trying to apply it to the industry, or there's a bunch of music people trying to use tech. And what we need to do is work with people who know both. This is where we go into the science a little bit. I asked Cliff to explain what artificial intelligence is and how it applies to music making. Well, look, I mean, let me break things down a little bit. Um, so artificial intelligence is a term which is as useful and as useless as the word digital, right? Everything's digital, as it were. And artificial intelligence breaks down into lots and lots of different things. Um, from a science, sorry, science fiction perspective, artificial intelligence is awareness and consciousness and things like that. And we're not quite there yet. But we do have things like robotic process automation, which is where lots and lots of automated thinking and tools, as it were, you can teach algorithms to not so much think as a human being, but calculate and spot gaps. Or you've got machine learning, where you can actually teach a machine repeatedly X should follow Y and Y should follow, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, Y should follow X, sorry, and, and Z should follow Y. And then it spots things that are different and then it points out that. They're great at pointing out exceptions. And of course, they can do this to huge data sets very, 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 very quickly. So there's a lot of these other things which then go into neural networks, which then goes into consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, artificial intelligence is a way to do huge levels of calculations very, very, very quickly. And that are, you know, and, and that sort of technologies are the ones that recommend what you watch on Netflix to, um, you know, tell you how to drive and which direction to go on things like Waze. You know, one of my clients is an artificial intelligence guru who's built an algorithm that picks the best algorithms. And one of the first products he built was a machine that could basically optimize any route for a delivery driver and it's kind of like now the number one thing for when it's something gets to your house you throw out a problem you've got 50 packages to deliver in this area what is the fastest most efficient way to hit those 50 houses and what's the route that's ai there is an area of artificial intelligence that i've worked in in a while which is it's a small small subset of artificial intelligence but of course it gets people particularly musicians very exercised which is machine generated music but there are much more interesting there's adaptive learning where you can create instant remixes really really quickly and brilliantly using technologies or being able to create music videos out of thin air by taking in huge amounts of information about the music and matching them to visuals and you've got discovery algorithms and you've got context algorithms and it's a fascinating space, and I'm working across all of those. I could do another whole podcast on all of those. But in short, these brilliant technologies, what I find slightly 
uh, I'd, say, I'd go so far as to say it's frustrating, is everyone focuses on this tiny subset of machine-generated music without realising that all of the biggest companies on the planet have gotten there using algorithms. That's how Amazon got there. That's how Facebook gets there. That's how TikTok and ByteDance gets there. Um, that's how Tesla gets there. They're adopting these algorithms as a tool, not a weapon. Um, and that's what I think that the music industry should do more and better. Blockchain. It's another buzzword. It's a digital technology that sits behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and is increasingly getting used in the music industry. So 2009, just after the uh, global economic crisis, a white paper popped online from a person or persons known as Satoshi Nakamoto describing a protocol that would essentially allow for secure money online. That was using technology which we now know as blockchain. And that blockchain technology is underlying cryptocurrencies. It's what makes digital currency possible. However, whilst there's lots of noise about cryptocurrencies, the underlying technology, which essentially is about verification using cryptography and using technology in order to make sure that you don't have the same as something else, to make sure you don't have a digital double spend, has lots and lots of applications in the world of commerce, including music. So if you take one of the biggest issues we have, which is how do you make sure that when a song is played, someone is paid? Or how do you know that somebody owns that thing? Or how do you make sure that an attribution to a particular creator or songwriter or artist, nobody jimmies around with it in the middle? Blockchain technologies can be great for securing all of that. AI from a music creation perspective is, is possibly one of the most exciting things that you can, you can have. Not least that the future of music is going to require some kind of personalization and or real life adaptation in order to be able to catch up with the digital world. If you look at everything from your playlist to your newsfeed, to how you play games online, to how you watch videos online, these things have all been personalized to you. Music is alarmingly static in a world that's dynamic. So if you can start creating music that lives infinitely and can live iteratively, that can be a massive thing. And from a blockchain perspective, I'm not sure that there is a sort of a, um, a consumer-based answer, an artist-based answer, but probably the one that's getting the most amount of heat and light are non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Those are built on that technology. Now, I told you that technology is great for provenance and great for security, so it means that people can mint an NFT, which is the term for creating an NFT, and making it one and one. And the way that you can stop it being copied or the way that you can prove it's unique is using that same blockchain technologies. There's a huge number of uh, platforms coming to the market. Many of them are for big and established acts, but there are other ones coming to the market which aims squarely at new artists in order to them to be able to sell their digital merch or as if you will virch in order to be able to build their fan base and people thinking oh if i get an nft and an up-and-coming artist then they become huge that's something further down the line that can be sold and then you can get a percentage of that sale that's just one of many many ways that artists can engage with nfts 
So what a, what an NFT is, and people get very confused about NFTs. So so I'll tell you. Um, so I don't know if you if you're if you're an art collector, right? So if you buy a Banksy, it's only worth sixteen million. If you've got that certificate of authenticity from pest control, pest control is the authority that authenticates Banksy's, right? And literally that same image can be got for free, or you can go to shop in Smithfields where they chuck them out for a tenner. Or there's the one that was sold yesterday for 16 million. The difference between that is that certificate of authenticity. An NFT is a digital certificate of authenticity that can't be played with. And what people are doing is buying and selling NFTs at the moment, digital artwork or GIFs or moving images, etc., etc. And their provenance, their ownership, the digital, the NFT itself is the NFT. And what we're finding is that people are doing it for bragging value and saying I own the NFT to that thing or you've got an NFT where that NFT acts more like a key or like a laminate like an access all areas pass so Kings of Leon were selling those golden ticket NFTs and the holder could go and see any Kings of Leon show for the rest of their lives or for as long as the band's going whichever the earlier you know uh, to see front row seats to see them you know for any headline gig or we're seeing NFTs that allow you to be able to collaborate with artists. There are people who are looking to fractionalise copyright using NFTs. And what it does is that what the thing the internet was brilliant at was distributing and sending stuff around. What NFTs try and do is essentially create the most rare thing in the digital world, which is scarcity. And that's what copyright was. You know, in the original, it's, uh, you know, if you took the... Uh, if you took a photograph, it was holding the negatives, which is there could be prints of it, but I own the negatives. I control it. I own it. I get paid for it. So it's that's it's the digital equivalent of that. And using blockchain technologies, that's what secures and or authenticates the certificate. That's what you're buying and selling. Like people sell each cell of a Simpsons episode can be resold or each page from a comic book. The original art can be sold and resold huge business in that world as well in any kind of collectibles um, but digital collectibles are huge that's not that's not a, a, an opinion they just are and they're going to get more and more huge the more we enter this kind of virtual world that we're all in right now the online world gives us more and more opportunities to interact in digitally created virtual situations in real time just as we do in the outside world, a simple example might be FaceTime or WhatsApp video where you talk to the video of the other people. More complicated examples might be real-time group gaming. All of this real-time virtual communication takes place in the metaverse. Cliff believes that music is spreading into the virtual worlds that make up this metaverse and this is creating huge opportunities for the music industry. Uh, that's right, and it's the world that we're in. And, and it has been somewhat uh, uh, catalyzed, if not supercharged, by the pandemic. But uh, the phrase was first coined in a uh, science fiction novel in 1984, uh, not 1984 itself, uh, but a book in 1984, which talked about a persistent digital world where people could act and react and interact in real time. Now, um, people will think of, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Ready Player One, or might think about things like Fortnite, where, you know, the whole world's 15-year-old boys were all, you know, fighting each other in a battle royale style. 
that's very much the metaverse in action. But metaverse includes Zoom. It includes Teams. I did a talk to the whole movie industry a few months ago on Teams. 200 of the top people in the UK film industry and it's going, oh, I don't believe in the metaverse. Like, what? Persistent, real-time, digital interaction with all of your peers. I think you're in it right now. And, and, that's, and that's it. We, we're in that world already. Peloton is in the metaverse. And as our devices grow and change we are slowly being taken over and put in the metaverse. So Apple, you start with a phone, with a touch screen, which changes the form of interaction. Then over time, we have things like iPads and we have Apple Watches. The next Apple device or the next big game changer Apple device is rumoured to be something that looks like a pair of spectacles. Snapchat have already made their specs. Facebook have just released their Ray-Ban specs right now, which captures the world and allows you to see extra and enhanced information. But again, you know, these can be from virtuality headsets to just simply playing a game online. We're in the metaverse already. And this represents, for me, one of the biggest opportunities for music. So we're seeing, you know, I don't know, imagine there was a classic band that was just thinking about existing in the metaverse and doing an infinite gear game. Oh, there's ABBA. ABBA, I think, are doing very much an extension of legacy building. Um, in a world where they swore that they would never reunite to do a concert again. So the first thing that um, Bjorn did was um, uh, put together an ABBA museum and everyone thought it was nuts. And then 20 plus years ago, for it was that long ago, it was nearer 30 years ago, 25 years ago, the idea of doing a songbook musical, everyone thought was insane, right? But that gave a world for ABBA to be performing live all over the world in, you know, close to 100 cities, playing their repertoire, giving them a license royalty and a fee royalty and blah, blah, blah. Then you have two movies, which all went on to make, you know, a, a billion between them. And then you've got a world now where they have been scanned by Industrial Light and Magic and they are building their own arena in the Olympic Park. And this means that Abel will now be able to play forever. So there's no question of just having the one-off gig or the one-off tour that they're rumoured to be offered a billion for um, over the years. They can now just roll and roll and roll. And they now exist in a virtual form. And I have no direct information. But if something like that isn't going to be built in Las Vegas or Dubai or I'm a, you know, I'm a banana. The music industry was built on scarcity. Um, the value was built on scarcity, which is on copyright. We're now realising that like software, the more software you have out there, the more money you make. Look at iOS. Look at Microsoft. Look at Sage, look at Salesforce. The biggest businesses on the planet are based upon not ignoring copyright, but actually creating a licensing and business model that means you become ubiquitous. And that for me represents the biggest opportunity for the music industry. But there's no coincidence that the values in music rights are growing significantly. Some people think that it's a bubble. There's other people who think that it is massively underpriced because with our old value of music, was based upon a scarcity model rather than the ubiquity model. And if creating a recurring revenue model, which Spotify didn't invent, but certainly pushed through successfully, you know, now we've got uh, Apple Music and we've got Amazon Music, I've got Tidal, all of those arrived after, after uh, uh, Apple. And then you've got new platforms, like metaversal platforms like Peloton. People are oh, it's incredible, amazing. 
can you think that they've got music online? Like, well, if you went into a gym and there was no music, you think, what the hell is this place? Particularly a spin cycle class or a cycling class. Like, what the hell are you doing? And the truth is the internet has been eerily quiet compared to the rest of our lives or any other public space. So you go into a pub, you go into a club, you go into a supermarket, there's always music playing. And the internet didn't have that, mainly because of um, licensing. When you build models and licensing models for people to get paid, all of a sudden music consumption goes up and up and up. And then, of course, people said, well, OK, well, if we do go on to the digital teat, it means that the physical world will disappear. Oh, and here comes vinyl. Now, is it the same as the CDs? No. But in terms of the margin, in terms of the collectability, and in terms of what it does for fandom, you know, I don't think there's anything much more special to lots of fans right now as vinyl. Most of it unplayed, as far as I can tell. Peloton came out of a few years ago in New York. Um, it was quite the thing, where lots of old Starbucks were being refitted as spin cycle classes. And they became almost like nightclubs. People would go in and go into a physical space. And then the founders of Peloton were like, well, hang on, how could you do that at home? And they designed a bike, which is a very, very good bike, but it also has a very big screen. Imagine something that's about six times your average iPad that's out there in front of you on the screen. And in that, you can see a series of what are pre-recorded classes, but the technology means you ride in a Peloton, i.e. a group, and you join that class together. And if you and I are in the class at the same time, i.e. we become into the metaverse, we can see how we're doing against each other. And the whole point is that that's meant to be very, very aspiring, uh, sorry, inspiring, just to say, come on, keep up with David, or come and try and beat him, or see where you see in the list as someone gives these classes. And then you've got Apple Fitness doing exactly the same, integrating the watch, their screens, and their Apple Music catalogue, and being able to bring all of these things together. All of these opportunities create new licensing and revenue opportunities for the music industry. And the music industry is getting better now, realising that actually they can strike very, very good deals, provided they're incentivised to understand it is not a zero-sum game. The music industry was paralysed by what was this invidious phrase, substitutionality. Substitutionality, frankly, is a load of cobblers, um, if I'm allowed to swear on the podcast. So there was a sense that, oh, hang on, there was a belief that radio was substitutional, which is, oh, if I listen to an REM song on the radio, I'll feel no need to go and buy an REM album. Instead, what did it do? It made you go and buy the REM album, oddly. Um, you know, And so many of these digital services were sort of shut down or punished on the belief that it would stop behaviours rather than actually create and trigger better behaviours. And that's what I think people are realising now. We live in a world where, I don't know about you, my household, there's a Spotify subscription, there's a YouTube subscription, there's an Amazon Prime subscription, there's an Apple Fit, all for the same catalogue. So the substitutional element is, 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 is you know, in, in my mind, as I said, you know, to use a, a Latin legal term, cobblers. My heritage is from a, an island called Mauritius. And I once made the bit of trying to work out where the Mauritian music industry sat or who got paid. There was no answer to that. Everyone would just buy a cassette and then some sort of pirated CD and blah, blah, blah. And if you give people a reason to pay, which was what Daniel X's original view was. He was originally a member of the Pirate Party. He's the founder of Spotify and his view was, if I created an experience better than piracy, 
people will access that. Now, um, you know, back when I met him, prepare to drop a name, uh, so to catch a name I'm about to drop, he had also gotten the view, which was prevailing at the time, in, in sort of 2006, 2007, that no one would pay for music ever again. That essentially what was happening was it was all tailing off. So his view was that it had to be ad-supported. If people aren't going to do that, create an experience that's better than piracy and let it be ad-supported. But as the business pivoted into subscriptions and everyone, you know, and actually Deezer, a rival one, which launched a few months before, got into the subscription game well before Spotify did. And you realise that actually if you give people a reason to pay, they'll usually take it. Now, Peloton pays a healthy slice of its subscriptions now, which are about 40 quid a month, to music rights holders. You know, all of those businesses I mentioned, Apple, Spotify, uh, you know, uh, even the likes of Netflix, you know, pass monies over now to the music industry. So this creates an opportunity. And those are essentially Web 2.0 businesses. As we enter into a world of world, Web 3.0, what we call Internet of Things, smart devices, smart cars. Uh, my my car has its own phone uh, sort of uh, music subscription. My watch has a subscription. You know, your glasses, your Alexa device, all of these other Internet of Things, smart devices around you, each could carry an opportunity. So for those who think that music value and the right, sorry, the the rights in music is overvalued there is a equal and opposite view that it is horrifically undervalued just as we start to have find more ways of making money so how does a musician like you take advantage of these opportunities well i think you know back to the kind of hierarchy of needs thing um i don't want to be dismissive of the creative earth i love creators i love i was always taught to respect people who do things that you can't do and I have the infinite respect for anyone that can write music, can play music, and can create music. I'm concerned sometimes people think I'm some sort of uh, digital Kool-Aid drinker that seems to see music as fuel. I don't, actually. I'm quite the opposite. However, what I do need to realise is that actually there is a hierarchy of needs. And for any musician to get paid in the industry, they need to pay some attention to their data and how it's being handled online. Uh, David, if I were to ask you to clean my garden, sorry, I'm looking at my garden at the moment and it needs to be done. If if you went and did all that work and then didn't give me your bank account and sort code, would you expect to get paid? That's the issue. And we have conversations. So I've been working with um, uh, a credits due initiative with uh, Bjorn Orveus again from ABBA and the guys at Session and there are various other now just saying this thing called credits due, which is creating what they call a minimal viable data, which is you've just got to have five bits of information attached to every piece of digital music. Otherwise, the truth is you are never going to get paid. And I go to lots of conferences and there's unsigned artists saying I don't get paid for anything. Are you a member of PRS or have you even joined an administration society or have you no, no, and no. It's like, and you get paid how? And at which point someone shakes their fist and says, oh, the man's stopping me getting paid. You know, and, and, and as, as, as rallying, the, you know, a cry that is, it's not the answer. So what we are all going to have to do, and that's performing rights organisations and collective management organisations or online platforms that, promising to pitch your music or you've got to make sure that your information is 
robust, it's clear, it's registered, it's been agreed on that you know you appoint at least an administrator, if not a publisher, to be able to look after your works on the songwriting side. That you're granting rights to online platforms who are going to sign up to distributors that are going to make sure that you get paid or you at least stand a chance of getting paid. And whilst there are some significant amount of work to be done by performing rights organisations and CMOs in the middle, you're just never going to get paid unless there is a digital way to pay you. I work with the Islands Academy Trust and that's a charity for songwriters who are the most disadvantaged. But we've realised that actually what we need to do is a lot of that needs to be through education explaining to people how to get paid, explaining what a good deal is, what a bad deal is, understanding and uh, understanding, you know, what the impact of a buyout deal might be or signing to a PRO-free production library or all these elements, as well as, you know, covering that. But the Ivers Academy itself is the trade body essentially for songwriters um, and creators, um, and we're taking a much broader view on that. Go to the Ivers Academy website and they do that as well. There's a lot of insight for songwriters and how they can protect their work. Anyone that is out there uh, creating music that isn't a member of PRS or isn't a member of the Ivers Academy, I think you're crackers. And again, it's a good way to get paid. I happen to chair its charitable arm, which is Trust, which is sort of, it's, it's related but separate to the Ivers Academy itself. But of course, we're trying to alleviate the need. And what I want to do the aim of every charity is to put itself out of business, is to make sure that songwriters are getting done properly. I'm also on the board of uh, what was the Musicians Benevolent Fund and is now Help Musicians. Now Help Musicians really, you know, 100 years old this year, but, you know, it really found its moment during the pandemic, bailing out, you know, thousands and thousands of musicians. Um, but what we're now looking to do is become much more focused on preventative care rather than crisis care and that means teaching artists about their business and we recently had an away day where we wanted to think about this thing and you know unfortunately you know for artists there is a sense that they want to keep the art pure um i have the pleasure straight privilege of working with all sorts of other creators you know youtubers or twitch streamers or sports people or tv people i think they're a little bit less naive when it comes to this world but there is a sense amongst musicians that the art needs to be pure of commerce. But then you say to them, why do you want to become a pop star? Oh, because I want to become rich. Oh, so money's something to do with this, right? So there you have it. The music industry is changing. It always has and it always will. But at its core is the song and the recording. If you get those two right, there are many, many more places that the music can find its way into in the digital world. Cliff talked about artificial intelligence and how new companies are personalising the world for each consumer. He talked about blockchain and how it is being used to keep track of ownership and transactions. He explained how artists are creating and selling NFTs. And he explained some of the huge opportunities for you in the ever-expanding metaverse of virtual real-time worlds. But he calls for you to do one thing above all, obtain, register and look after the data that identifies the song and the recording as belonging to you. That data is the equivalent of your song or recording's sort code and bank account details. Without it, you won't get paid. You don't need to spend a huge amount of time on this, but you do need to find a little time. 
it's no longer a world of show me the money. You've now got to show me the data. My very great thanks to Cliff Fluey for taking the time to talk to me. I'll include more information and links to the things he talked about in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Would you be interested in an overview of how the music industry really works? If so, I've put together a mini course called Learn How the Music Industry Works in just 25 minutes. And guess what? It explains how the industry works and takes about 25 minutes to listen to or read. If you'd find this helpful, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Click on the Start Here button. It will take you to a sign-up page. Please sign up and we will deliver the mini course to you completely free of charge. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. <laughs>